Well, our scripture reading today will be the final words of Moses, Deuteronomy 33, if you'd open your Bibles there, please, as we now come into the last couple of weeks of analyzing this book of Deuteronomy. We're going to be looking at the 33rd chapter today, Lord willing, the final chapter next Sunday, and two weeks from today we're starting an exposition of the book of Romans. So you follow along as I read the scriptures this morning, beginning at verse 1, and keep in mind this is the last words Moses writes before he dies, which puts even more weight to these words. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. Indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand, and they followed in your steps. Everyone receives your words. Moses charged us with the law, a possession for the assembly of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of Israel together. May Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. And this regarding Judah, so he said, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah. And bring him to his people. With his hands he contended for them. And may you be a help against his adversaries. Of Levi, he said, let your Thumim and your Urim belong to your godly man, whom you proved at Massa, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them, and he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. O Lord, bless his substance and accept the work of his hands. Shatter the loins of those who rise up against him and those who hate him so that they will not rise again. Of Benjamin, he said, may the beloved of the Lord dwell in security by him who shields him all the day, he dwells between his shoulders. Of Joseph, he said, blessed of the Lord be his land, with the choice things of heaven, with the dew and from the deep lying beneath, and with the choice yield of the sun, and with the choice produce of the months, and with the best things of the ancient mountains, and with the choice things of the everlasting hills, and with the choice things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush, let it come to the head of Joseph, and to the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. As firstborn of his ox, majesty is his, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he will push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth, and those are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and those who are thousands of Manasseh. Of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going forth, and Ishakar in your tents. They will call peoples to the mountain, and they will offer righteous sacrifices, for they will draw out the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. Of Gad, he said, Blessed is the one who enlarges Gad. He lies down as a lion and tears the arm also the crown of the head. Then he provided the first part for himself, for there the ruler's portion was reserved. And he came with the leaders of the people. He executed the justice of the Lord and his ordinances with Israel. Of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp that leaps forth from Bashan. Of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfy with favor and full of the blessings of the Lord. Take possession of the sea and the south. 
Of Asher, he said, more blessed than sons is Asher. May he be favored by his brothers, and may he dip his foot in oil. Your locks will be iron and bronze, and according to your days, so your leisurely walk be. There is none like God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help, and through the skies in his majesty, the eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. So Israel dwells in security, the fountain of Jacob secluded, in the land of grain and new wine, his heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty, so your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread upon their high places." Now, those are powerful words that were written, the last words of Moses. Obviously, when you go down through that and you look at that, they're prophetic words that haven't happened yet, which we believe will happen at some point in the future. We'll bring that out this morning. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word of God and to the exposition of it yet to occur. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thee today to thank you for your greatness, for your goodness, for your grace. We're so thankful that you reveal that you are the sovereign, upright, holy God. We see it right here. And we are so thankful that the future is not in our hands, it's in yours. You're our protector, you're our preserver, you're our judge, you're our savior. And I would pray, Lord, that you would just quiet us down as your people and help us to more and more trust you and draw close to you. I pray that you would grant us in these times a spirituality that will please you work in our minds and work in our hearts, that we will swiftly run to thee and swiftly run away from that that can harm our relationship. And I would ask that you would forgive us for those moments when we've stumbled. Quicken our minds and hearts. Make us sensitive to thy word. Make us sensitive to thy will. We see in this very passage that we just completed reading that the future for your people is very bright. Help us to believe that and help us to live in such a way that we reflect that. Lord, we pray for the sick of the church. We ask that you would heal them. We have many that are struggling physically. Heal them. We pray for those that are emotionally struggling. We pray that you would stabilize them. We pray for those who are financially struggling, that you would provide for them. We would ask, Lord, for the loss, that you would save them. We would pray today for the people who've backslidden and have fallen away from a close, intimate relationship with you, that you would restore them. And also, Lord, we want to pray for our country. In this passage of Scripture, we see that you are a sovereign God, a sovereign God who rules over nations, a sovereign God to whom we may turn, to whom we may pray. And Lord, we would ask that you would intervene on behalf of our nation now. Thy people are in need of thy intervention. We are being hurt in many ways, Lord, in ways we've never seen before. There's an economic hurt that's coming with inflation and taxes and even prices of gasoline. There's an emotional hurt that exists today among your people. People are scared because of the lawless age in which we're living, the godless age in which we're living. So we would ask, Lord, that you would please help your people by using your sovereignty to turn this nation around. We pray for faithful churches all across this country and all across this world that are faithfully and accurately proclaiming thy truth. We pray your blessing would be on them today. And we pray for our church. We pray that you would pronounce your blessings on this church today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This past week, I read an interesting article that was written back in 2015 by a, a woman who was quite a teacher and scholar. And the article was entitled, Does Happily Ever After Really Exist? And when you read fairy tales or you watch Disney movies or old westerns, people are led to believe the story is going to end happily ever after. The prince will come to the rescue. The good guy ultimately is going to win. What this particular author did was she went out and she asked men and women whether or not they believed that there was really a happily ever after. She said many of the women that she polled said no, a few said yes. She said she never did run into any man that gave her a straight answer. In fact, most of the men said, I don't understand the question. <laughs> but the most profound answer she said she got was from her own daughter, who said, of course it exists. Everyone is responsible for their own happiness. We all have the ability to experience happily ever after on a daily basis. That is a great answer. And that's the point Moses really has been driving home all throughout this book of Deuteronomy. Choose to obey God and you can have a life that's filled with happiness and blessing. Choose not to obey God and you can have a life that's miserable, filled with trouble. It's possible to have a happily ever after life while you're living it here on earth. But Moses says in Deuteronomy 33, Israel will have it one day when she's in that kingdom. The story for the nation Israel is going to end happily ever after. As he brings Deuteronomy to a conclusion, he wants to make that point known to the nation. What he says here is in the end, all tribes of Israel are going to be in the promised land and they will live happily ever after because the sovereign God of the Bible will have caused that to happen. Now, as we've gone through this book, we would say, well, Israel doesn't deserve that. No, she doesn't. The rebel that she's been, the transgression she's committed, the kinds of sins we've seen her fall into as we've even journeyed through this book, she doesn't deserve it. That's God's grace. And the same grace is operative in our life. We don't deserve heaven. When we go through the book of Romans, which is our next study, you'll certainly see that. We don't deserve that. That is grace. And what God is going to ultimately do for Israel is in pure grace, he's going to take her into that land. He's going to bless her in that land. Now, the key to understanding this chapter is the last verse of Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, and the last verses of Deuteronomy 33, verses 26 to 29. The last verse of chapter 32 tells us there will come a time in the world when the nations, nations, are going to be rejoicing because Israel is in her land. And the last verses of this chapter describe a time when Israel is living securely in the land. All tribes are experiencing the full blessings of God. So in between these two great points, Moses pronounces his final blessings on the nation. And I want you to notice how it begins. Verse 1, now this is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, I want to stop right there. Moses is the man of God. When you're nearing death, and Moses is nearing death at this point, and he knows it, we'll see it next Sunday, Lord willing, there is no greater title that you can have than you were a man of God or there goes a woman of God. It's a very rare title. 
Joshua would record in Joshua 14 the words of Caleb, and Caleb would also call Moses the man of God. The Apostle Paul very rarely called someone that, but there was one time when he was writing his letter to Timothy where he called Timothy the man of God. It's high praise. Whenever you have someone identifying someone else as a man of God or a woman of God, it is very high praise. In this case, you have God. God identifying Moses as the man of God by his own classification. He's calling him the man of God. And Moses, as the man of God, is going to pronounce blessings upon Israel, very positive, very prophetic. Israel is going to have a national story that's going to end happily ever after. But they are going to have trouble in between that, trouble in between those moments. In fact, just right now, this weekend, there's trouble between Israel and the Palestinians. So they still don't have these blessings yet, but they will be theirs one day. Now, there are three final blessings to this chapter that we want to show you. First of all, Moses reminds Israel how God blessed her in the past, verses 2 to 5. Moses wanted the people of Israel to think back and remember what God had done for her nationally. God had been the source of some amazing things. I mean, he went and got that nation out of Egypt. Just think of that. He went and got that nation out of Egypt, and he had showered her with some amazing blessings. And there are nine historical facts that Moses mentions here. First of all, God himself revealed himself to his people at Mount Sinai. That's what he says in verse 2. The Lord came from Sinai. He said the Lord came from Sinai. Now just think about this. Just think about this. God personally revealed himself to Israel. He personally left the splendor and glory of heaven to come down to these people to reveal himself. And these people actually had the privilege of seeing the glory of God. You and I aren't going to see the glory of God until we get to heaven. That's when we'll have the privilege of seeing it. This nation actually had God come down to this earth and reveal his glory to this nation. He's never done that to any other nation in the world. He hasn't done that to China. He hasn't done it to the United States. He hasn't done that to Australia or Africa or Canada or South America. He's not done that to them. He did it for Israel. And at Mount Sinai, there was this thick cloud on the mountain. There was thunder and lightning and smoke and fire. And the mountain was shaking and ablaze. And there was a loud trumpet. The glory of the Lord stayed there for six days. When the people looked at that mountain, we have seen in other studies that it was a consuming fire that was burning that reflected the glory of God. The mountain never burned up. At Mount Sierre, northeast of Mount Sinai, the people circled that mountain for days and God actually spoke to Moses. And in the wilderness of Paran, north of Mount Sinai, a thick cloud appeared over the tabernacle where God literally moved and told these people where they were to go. He's never done that for any other nation. Never, ever. God said to Israel, you remember this. You remember how God came and revealed his glory. Secondly, he revealed himself in the midst of 10,000 holy ones. That's what he reveals in the next part of the verse, in verse 2. And he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. I mean, what that means is he showed up with 10,000s of angels, thousands and thousands of angels. What other nation in the world has experienced that? Where you have the mighty, majestic, glorious God visibly showing up in a spectacular way for people to see. Then he revealed himself by flashes of lightning. That's what he said. And the text is specific to point out, at his right hand, there was flashes of lightning for them. Now, what I understand the language of that to be 
communicating is people could actually see something that appeared to be like a right hand. I think they're actually looking into the sky seeing this. And out of that right hand that they're visibly seeing are these flashes of lightning that he's just throwing out. Probably this was all visible to them. And after God had made this display of himself, Moses said, don't forget one other thing. He loves his people. Verse 3 says, indeed, he loves the people. Why in the world would God, with all of his majesty, show up with thousands and thousands of angels to meet with a pathetic nation like Israel? Why in the world would he do that? Because he loved her. He loved her. Israel still doesn't get this point, but it's a true point eternally. The relationship that God has had with Israel, or let me put it another way, the relationship that Israel's had with God at best has been rocky. In fact, most of the time, the relationship is rocky. It's rocky right now. But Moses wanted the people of Israel to understand God loves you. God loves that nation. God loves those people. And it's clear when it comes to Israel and also us, we'll see that when we get into Romans, it's clear that when God loves his people and us, the love of God does not depend upon the current spiritual climate of the people. It's not a love that depends on that. Deuteronomy has been a hard-hitting book. It's a book filled with threats. It's a book filled with warnings. It's a book that promises chastisements if God's people aren't willing to obey his word. But in the midst of all of that, God says, I want my people to know I love them. Many times in Deuteronomy, Moses reminded Israel of this. And the fact that he loved his people should have prompted Israel to humble themselves to say, you mean Almighty God, who's this spectacular, great, glorious God, all-powerful, he actually loves me? It should have caused that nation to want to obey him. And that love should cause you and me to do the same thing. It should be cause for us to want to know his word, understand his word, apply his word, obey his word. I mean, God loved us enough to send his own son to die for us. That love that he's demonstrated toward us should cause us to humble ourselves before him. What Moses says to Israel is, you need to understand as a nation, he loved you. The fifth fact is God's holy set-apart people are in his hands, and he said, and you're in his hands. All your holy ones are in your hand. God's people are considered to be set apart people of God. They're in the hands of God. Only God's people can say that. Israel as a nation can say we're in the hands of God. Israel today exists because the hands of God have protected her. There have been powers, major powers of the world who've sought to destroy her. There have been major forces that have sought to exterminate her. The worst is yet to come in the tribulation when the Antichrist is going to go on a worldwide vendetta to try to exterminate the Jew. Satan is going to try to destroy Israel. They won't be able to do it. Why? Because they're in God's hands. The sixth fact is God's holy set-apart people followed God's direction. There was a time, verse 3, when they followed God. There was a time when this nation wanted to follow where God was leading them. They followed the Lord. They wanted to obey the word of God. And that's the key to a happy life. That's the key to a blessed life. If they would just figure that out today, they could understand this principle. And if God's people today would just figure out this, life would be better for them. If they just would follow the word of God, follow the direction of the word of God. But of course, to this point, they haven't. 
The seventh fact is God's holy set-apart people receive God's words. And again, it comes down to words. At the end of verse 3, they receive of your words. God does great things for people who love his words and study them. God does great things for people who want to know the word. And we're talking about the very words. They're not just concepts, the very words. That's what he brings out here. The very words are inspired. And one of the most loving things God ever did for his people was to give them his words. Now, you and I who live in this country have an amazing blessing given to us because we have these words in our own language. And we have it bound in one book, the scriptures. And so here we are with an entrustment of the very words of God, and God's people are the only ones who can receive the word, who can understand the word. God says, don't ever forget that. God's given you his word. The eighth fact is God's law was given to his people through Moses. He says in verse 4, Moses charged us with a law, a possession for the assembly of Jacob. I want you to notice that. It's critical. The law was for Israel. The law was given for Israel, not to the church. We'll see it in Romans. What the law does for us is it condemns every one of us. And we don't live by the Old Testament at all. We live by grace. We live under a new law. The law of Christ constrains us under the grace of God. So this law was given by Moses to Israel. It couldn't be stated any plainer here. It was given by God to Moses to give to Israel so that she could govern social life and economic life and religious life and ceremonial life. I mean, this law was given to her as a nation. She's supposed to have those festivals, those three main festivals that was given to Israel. It's not given to the church. And God stresses this here. You were privileged to have all of these things given to you. And the ninth fact is he was the king of his people. Verse 5 says, and he was king in Jeshurun. I find that interesting. Jeshurun means upright. And what Moses is saying, there was a time when, as a nation, you were upright and interested in God being your king. You didn't need a prime minister. You didn't need a president. You didn't need a king. Because God was leading you. God was there. He was developing you. He was caring for you as his own nation. He had entered into a covenant agreement with you, and God viewed his people as an upright nation. In fact, it's interesting to me, he was king in Jeshurun, and by the statement that he makes there and another statement where he used the same noun down in verse 26, it would seem to me God says concerning his nation, that's the way I view you. I view you as an upright nation that belongs to me. Now act like it in the way you govern your life. Only God's people can realistically say these things about God. And Moses said, you remember this. You remember all that God's done for you. That's blessing number one. Blessing number two, Moses reveals how God's going to bless each family in the future. Now this, to me, is quite a remarkable passage of Scripture, and I want to explain why. Moses has written the first five books of the Bible. This is the last one he's going to write. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, he recorded a blessing that Jacob pronounced on all the tribes of Israel. One by one, he went through the tribes of Israel, pronouncing blessings on the tribes in Genesis chapter 49. And in Genesis 49, Jacob points out a lot of problems these families were going to have, these tribes were going to have. 
For example, he brings out the fact that, Reuben, you've been involved in immorality, you're going to suffer because of that. He brings out Simeon and Levi, you're violent guys. You're given to violence and killing. Uh, he brings out Ishakar, you're involved in slave stuff, slave labor. You'll be, end up slave people. Then he brings out Dan, you're like a serpent, a serpent who's going to be a person who's going to attack in a serpentine way and be attacked in a serpentine way. Then he brings out Gad, who raided different people. And then Benjamin, you're a ravenous wolf. So when Jacob was pronouncing his blessings on the nation Israel, he included all this negative stuff, not Moses. Moses doesn't bring up one negative thing in this pronouncement, which is just fascinating. Now, there are some interesting things to think through as we work our way through this material. First of all, each group that he names here, we learn from Ezekiel 48, is going to get some land. They're going to have a place to live in the kingdom. And each group is also going to have their name on a gate, an exit gate going out of Jerusalem. We learn that in Ezekiel chapter 48. You remember when we went through Ezekiel. Each group also is named in Revelation chapter 7, with the exception of Dan. And I understand that to mean that Dan is not going to be protected during that tribulation, but you'll see Dan is going to certainly have blessings when they get into the millennium. So what Moses is doing here, in an amazing way, is he's taking Israel from the time that they are in the millennium, he shoots them by the tribulation, and he pronounces the way things are going to be when they're in the millennium and Jesus Christ is reigning. And he gives them messages. How in the world would he have even known this except by the amazing prophetic spirit of God? His first message is to the family of Reuben in verse 6. And he says, what God's going to do with Reuben, and of course, as I just mentioned, when Jacob Talk to Reuben, you know, you were immoral and you were involved in immoral things, therefore it's going to cost you. Well, when Moses pronounces blessing on Reuben here, he basically says, God's going to bless you with numbers. He said, my blessing on Reuben is Reuben may live and not die, nor as men be few. In other words, God is going to continue to see to it that Reuben will exist. Reuben's family is going to flourish. Reuben's family is going to be in that promised land. That immoral sin that cost him the first time will not cost him forever. I mean, there's a great demonstration of grace here. In fact, Moses doesn't even bring up his failure or his sin. He doesn't even mention it. He just basically says, you're going to be blessed with great numbers in that land. The second message is his message to the family of Judah in verse 7. And in the family of Judah, he says, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With his hands he contended for them, and may you be a help against his adversaries. Through Judah is going to come the Messiah. He will come to the help of people. And the pronoun him refers to that Messiah. Judah is going to be a real asset to the Messiah, and he's going to work in helping him judge the adversaries when the Messiah gets back here. And I also believe in the reference here to Judah is that Judah is going to be a person who will literally probably cry out for the Messiah to come because it says, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah and bring him to his people. So probably what I suspect from this is during the tribulation period, it will be this particular tribe that's going to lead the cry out for the Messiah to return. And when the Messiah does return, then this line of Judah is going to be right there in the warfare fighting for the glory of God. 
The third message is to the tribe of Levi, verses 8 to 11. Levi is a family that's going to end up with some land. We learn in Ezekiel they will have land assigned to them in various locations, and they also are going to have their name on the gate that goes out of the city, according to Ezekiel chapter 48. And Moses brings up this tribe of Levi. He said their responsibility primarily when we get into that land is they're going to be involved in ministry for the Lord. They'll be consulting the Urim and Thummim. They'll be beyond that. They'll be consulting the Lord. They'll be revealing things to the people. They're going to handle the word of God. They're going to teach the scriptures. They're going to be the ones who are going to lead in the burnt offerings. They're going to lead in the incense offerings. They're going to be those who are going to give careful instruction as to how these relate to Jesus Christ when he's reigning in Jerusalem. They're going to point out how all these things pointed to him and what they meant. During the millennium, there are going to be different responsibilities for each family. And this family of Levi will have a specific responsibility of ministering the word of God and serving at the temple. The fourth message is the message to the family of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin is not described here as a ravenous wolf like Jacob described him. What he's described in verse 12, May the beloved of the Lord dwell in security by him who shields him all the day, and he dwells between his shoulders. Benjamin's no longer seen as a ravenous wolf. Benjamin was the youngest of the group, and Moses' prayer is that you'll be in a sweet, wonderful relationship with the Lord in the kingdom, and you will have security, you'll be shielded by the Lord in the millennium, your tribe will be loved by the Lord, beloved of the Lord, and you will be protected. A small tribe could be threatened, but you're not going to be exterminated. You'll survive it. This is one of the tribes that's named in Revelation chapter 7 as being one of the 144,000, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. Which brings us to the fifth message, the message to the family of Joseph, verses 13 to 17. Now, Joseph is mentioned in quite a lengthy discussion here in verses 13 to 17, and it includes his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. And Moses does nothing but say, look, in that kingdom, God, you're going to pronounce tremendous blessings on him and his family and his land. Everything Joseph will have in that great kingdom is going to flourish. Everything Joseph will have will be something that will just produce prosperity for him. And he lists those kinds of things. He'll have the best things with the ancient mountains, the choice things of the everlasting hills. He'll have the choice things of the earth. He'll have a crown on his head. He's going to be one who he and his sons are going to be known as great people who love the Lord during that millennial kingdom. All these tribes are getting positive reviews as to what's going to happen in the millennium by Moses. The sixth message is the message to the family of Zebulun and Ishakar. They, too, are going to have their name on a gate. Moses' message to the two younger sons of Leah is, you're going to have an abundance, and your families are going to live by the mountains and the seas. That's what he says in verses 18 to 19. You're going to have area that will be by the mountains and the seas. You'll be at home in the mountains. You're going to be outdoor kinds of people. You're going to love the outdoors, and when this kingdom is established, you'll be there. And you're going to be able, he brings out, draw out hidden treasures of the sand. That's what he mentions in verse 19, hidden treasures of the sand. What I understand that to mean is during that kingdom, when Jesus Christ is here on earth, there are going to be a lot of things discovered, a lot of things discovered that haven't been discovered. 
And obviously, Zebulun and Ishakar are going to be involved in that kind of activity. Then we have the message to the family of Gad, verses 20 to 21. Gad is going to be a person who will live east of the Jordan, and he is going to be like a lion and tears the arm, also the crown of the head. Then he provided the first part for himself. There the ruler's portion was reserved, and he came with the leaders of the people. He executed justice of the Lord and his ordinances with Israel. I understand this to be a prophecy that Gad is going to, just as they were involved in toppling Sakon and Og and took the best part of the land, so they also are going to work for the Messiah in the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back and reign, and they're going to work side by side with him, carrying out justice as it relates to Israel and as it relates to the ordinances of God and as it relates to the enemies of God. No one's going to raid him. He's going to rule, and that's going to be the blessing of the tribe of Gad. Then there's the message to the family of Dan. Notice verse 22 of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp that leaps forth from Bashan. No longer, remember, Jacob called him a serpent. You're like a serpent. Moses doesn't give him that title. He's no longer seen as a serpent, a lion, a lion. A lion who is not now just sneaking around attacking. This is a lion's cub who's not afraid to spring into action. He will be a protector of the region of Bashan. That's northern part of Israel, modern-day Syria. I understand him to be there. That's where he's going to hunker down in the northern part of Israel when God gives them the kingdom. Now, the ninth message is the message to the family of Naphtali. In verse 23 of Naphtali, he says, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, take possession of the sea in the south. Naphtali is going to control the sea regions in the southern part of the land. No longer is going to be an unstable person, but is going to be very stable and very satisfied and very secure. And the final message of the tribes that Moses gives to the tribes is to the family of Asher. In verses 24 to 25, his message to Asher was that he would be honored and favored. He would live a life of delicacy, live a life of leisure. His concept is this is going to be a tribe that's going to truly be happy and blessed living a leisurely existence when that kingdom is established. I guarantee you everything Moses saw will eventually come to fruition. It hasn't now. And there's no place in history where the things he's described here have hit yet. But they will. Because what Moses is doing here is he's showing that future life for Israel will be glorious. Future life for Israel will be happily ever after. The one other thing I want to bring out before we move on to the final section, and that is in the millennium, the various tribes are going to live in various places, and they are going to do different things. And I would encourage you, if you want to get a glimpse of some of these things, that you go back through our study in Ezekiel 48, because we go through the various land dimensions of where each tribe is going to live. It coincides amazingly with what Moses predicts here, which is showing the proof that no prophecy of scriptures of private interpretation. You compare all prophetic passages, they all say the same thing if they're true, and this text says the same thing. Now that brings us to the third blessing. Moses reveals how great God is. Now here's his last words, verses 26 to 29. And his last words before dying are words that basically say, you have to focus on God. This is what's rolling through Moses' mind. You're getting a glimpse here of what Moses is 
thinking about just before he dies. And he's thinking about 15 realities about God. Reality number one, there's none like God. There's none like the upright Jeshurun. That's what he says there in verse 26. There's none like the God of Jeshurun. There's just none like him. God is an upright God. He honors upright people. There's none like God. Don't ever forget that. There's nobody like God. Secondly, God comes from heaven to help Israel. God is the one who has kept Israel here in existence. God is the one who is willing to come to the aid of Israel if she would just turn to him and cry out to him. If they would call out to God, he's a very present help in times of trouble. And if we would call out to God, he's a very present help in times of our trouble as well. The problem is getting them to cry out to God. The third reality is he's a majestic God operating in the heavens. Just think about that. He says this God is operating in the heavens. He rides in the heavens. He's sovereign over all. He's not limited to earth like we are. He's over the heavens, all heavens. The first heaven, the atmosphere, the second heaven, the stellar heaven, the third heaven, the throne of God heaven. He's in control of all of it. The fourth reality is he's an eternal God. That's what he says in verse 27. He is an eternal God, the eternal God. His commitment to Israel is not fickle. It's eternal. I'll tell you what, the people who say that the church has replaced Israel, in my mind, are theologically brain dead. Because you can't establish that if you go straight through these books of the Bible. He's the eternal God of Israel. Moses is driving that point home here. He's not a temporal God who's only their God till the church shows up. He's the eternal God of Israel. Israel hasn't been grafted into our program. We've been grafted into her program. Now his fifth reality is God is a dwelling place for his people. He says that in verse 27. He is a dwelling place. I want you to think about that. There's where you want to dwell and live your life in a relationship with God. He's your dwelling place. He's your security. Your security is not your job. And your security is not your money. And your security is not your education. And your security is not your friends. It's not even your family. Your security is God. And when people are about to die, they're going to think about that. What have I trusted in here? What have I given my life to? In this case, give it to the Lord, because he's your dwelling place. The sixth reality is God uses his everlasting arms to drive away his people's enemies. I love that imagery in verse 27, and underneath are the everlasting arms. The everlasting arms mean that God has strength to be able to lift you up, God has strength to be able to hold you up, and God has strength to be able to move you. You purpose to pursue his upright ways according to the word of God, and what you'll discover is his strong arms will enable you to do much. The seventh reality Moses is thinking about is his everlasting arms destroy his people's enemies. That's what Moses is thinking about. And he drove out the enemy from before you. Moses is thinking back of times where they literally saw God drive out the enemies of his people. I mean, Moses could look back on life and say, man, we saw God literally give us victory over enemies. And can't we all say that? We've seen God do amazing things in our world, giving us victory. The eighth reality is God will see to it that Israel dwells in security. Verse 28 says that Israel dwells in security. Man, she longs for that. 
Moses says there will come a day when she'll have it. There will come a day when Israel will dwell in security. Her land will be like a secluded resort area. And by the way, I want you again to notice where security is found here, this kind of security, not in the government. It's not found in a political party. It's found in the Lord. And we, as God's people, need to keep our sights riveted right on him in these times because he's our security. The ninth reality is God is the one who gives Israel prosperity. That's what he says in verse 28. And he will lead them in a land of grain and new wine. I mean, God is going to bring them into a kingdom and all of these things are going to be given to her, which is just what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. The tenth blessing is God is the one who's blessed his people. That's what he says in verse 29. Blessed are you, O Israel. Don't miss this. Israel is a blessed nation. Israel has survived because she's a blessed nation. Now, what Moses was trying to get her to realize is this. You already have that. You're already blessed by God because you have a relationship with God. But you can enjoy and experience some of these wonderful blessings of the Lord if you will purpose to understand and apply his word here and now. God can give you amazing, wonderful blessings here and now as you purpose to apply his word. Then he brings us to the 11th reality. God is the one, and you don't want to miss this, who saved his people. Verse 29 says, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. There's going to come a day when all of the nations of the world are going to say, there's no nation like Israel. That nation has been saved by the Lord. This nation literally will have been saved by Almighty God. She will be in that land because God's going to save her and deliver her to that land. But I want you to notice in the verse the theology of it, because this is rich theology. Who is it that saves whom? Who saved you? Who saved me? We didn't save ourselves. It was God. In his amazing elective grace that you'll see beautifully developed in the book of Romans. It was God in his elective grace that saved us. It's God that saved the nation. He said, I want this nation to remember that. The twelfth reality is it's God who protects his people as a shield. That's what he says in verse 29, who is the shield of your help. We can't even begin to realize the number of times God has protected us. Who of us can even identify the times that God has protected us? But what we can know is the people of God, he's been our shield. The thirteenth reality is God is the one who fights for his people with a sword. Now I find this one interesting. And the sword of your majesty... Now, we who've gone through the book of Revelation have been carefully analyzing words in regard to sword. And there's the Rumphia sword, which is a large, broad sword. But then there's this Machaira sword that is the short sword for in close fighting. The sword that is used here in the Septuagint is the Machaira sword. What I understand this to mean is Moses is thinking about the fact, you know, I literally saw God in close-range, upfront situations, and he defended me. I saw God personally come to my assistance and aid, and he defended me. And what he's saying is any of God's people will see that in their life, who purpose to put him first in life. He will come and he will defend them individually, one-on-one situations. The 14th reality is God's the one who causes his people's enemies to cringe. In verse 29, so your enemies will cringe before you. 
Mark this in your thinking. There will come a day when all enemies of Israel will cringe when they see that nation. They will cringe in fear. Because they will know they were not right in their attitude toward Israel. Every knee is going to bow before the Lord and God is going to make sure that every nation realizes that Israel was the apple of his eye. And he ends it by saying, God is the one who elevates his people. Verse 29, and you will tread upon their high places. God says, I'm going to elevate you. I'm going to take you from the lowest of lows and take you to the highest of highs. This is the way Moses, the man of God, ended his message. What he was thinking about was God. God. What an amazing man of God he truly was. Back in 1954, there was a highly rated TV program that aired from 1954 to 1960. You may remember it. The program was called Father Knows Best. And the program was about an American family that lived a middle-class American life in the Midwest. A key actress that made that program a success was a young girl whose name they called on the program Kathy, or they referred to her as Kitten. Her real name was Lauren Chapin. She won five junior Emmys as a child actress. When you watch that TV program, it seemed like her life is a wonderful fairy tale. She had a wonderful TV family, which she said was a wonderful TV family. She had popularity, she had money, she had success. But behind the scenes of her life, it was a mess. She was sexually abused by her father and another man. Her mother was cold, uncaring, a mean drunk. That's what she called her. When the show was canceled in 1960, her life fell apart. She married at age 16, divorced at age 18, became a drug addict, got involved in all kinds of immoral behavior. She attempted suicide. She ended up in a mental institution. She got involved in prostitution. She wrote fraudulent checks and ended up in jail. And she ended up on welfare. Her life was a disaster. She had two children. Her son started attending church. And he asked his mom to go with him. She didn't want to go. He said, if you don't go, I'm going to stop going myself. So she eventually went to a church and she heard about a father who loved her, who sent his son to die for her. And she believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved. Her life that had been a life of misery and sin to this very day is a life of happiness and joy. In fact, the ending of Lauren's life is truly happily ever after. That's the story of Israel. Her national life has been a story of failure and misery and sin. Her national story is the story of a life that's been a mess. But Moses says the story is not going to end that way. The story will end happily ever after, and that story can be our story. You see, if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
And if you will, after believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, get the work on carefully understanding and applying the word of God, our story too will end happily ever after. You have Moses' word on that. You have God's word on that. May we pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior right now in this moment, why not settle it? Right where you sit. This is just business between you and the Lord. Acknowledge you're a sinner. Invite Jesus Christ to come in and take over your life. Our Father, we thank you for the fact that you're a God who loves us. Man, we can't explain that, but that is grace. We thank you for that. And we're thankful that you're a God who saves us. We're thankful that you're a God who's patient. You give us time to understand and learn and develop. I pray, Lord, that we would be people in these times that would keep our focus on you and your word just as Moses did. Thank you for his writings. Thank you for his life. In Jesus' name, amen.